I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. By virtue of being a woman, that does also mean that you are excluded from some things. Good heavens, fancy the Herald sending a woman to England to cover a cricket match. Women can't play at Lords until 1976. The fielding is keen. Every girl is on her toes. Membership of the Maryland Cricket Club until 1998. I just loved every minute of it. Just to play was wonderful. People were so relieved to find that you could still play cricket without trying to kill the other side. It really catches the struggle for a lot of us. It's very clear there's a lot of history that we actually don't know about. Gives all of us that little bit of extra courage to take that next step. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Hello and welcome to The Maiden Summer. I'm Nick Richardson and we're about to embark on a story of boldness and perseverance that spans generations. This is the fascinating story behind Australian women's cricket. Across this podcast series... You'll hear the voices and the thoughts of those who drove that story, from the earliest days through to moments when some of the walls began to fall. Very few of those women are household names, but all of them deserve to be. From a time when the map of the world was awash with the pink of the British Empire to an era when 86,000 people celebrated the Australian Women's World Cup victory at the MCG. Across 150 years, a group of women emerged who helped to create something new, little by little, a run at a time, wicket by wicket and word by word. They watched the game of cricket, liked what they saw and could think of no reason why they shouldn't play it. But like pretty much every pioneer, it wasn't easy. There were obstacles, prejudices, small issues and big ones. There were triumphs and setbacks in years when the game seemed stuck, drying up and going nowhere. So let's try to bring some of those women back into sharper focus. Let's give those pioneers some more time in the sun. Let's start in Bendigo, a gold mining town in regional Victoria. The year is 1874. The area is known as Sandhurst back then, and it's the town's Easter Fair. There's a band, an array of carriages to take patrons to the fair and something new on the program, a women's cricket match. A local teacher called John Ray, who was the headmaster of Ironbark School, has come up with the idea of staging a cricket match to help two local charities. John Ray started the game idea off. He approached the Easter Fair Committee and said that he wanted to get a couple of teams from the clergy to play. When he approached the clergy afterwards, once they'd agreed to that, they said no. (laughs) So then he was stuck with the dilemma of what to do and the women offered to play. That's Louise Zeta Sampson, whose book on this match, Bowl the Maidens Over, was recently released. Louise says anticipation for the match is high. It's listed in the local paper as the fair's main attraction, more popular than the usual favourites, the fire brigade and fireworks. A local sponsor promises a cricket bat to the highest scorer. The match is a family affair. Mrs Emily Ray, head teacher at Ironbark School and John's wife, captains one team, and the other team is led by their daughter Barbara, who has been recruiting and training women in the lead-up to the match. 
there are sunny skies and a sizeable crowd, including some visitors from Melbourne. For the first, and certainly not the last time, a great deal of attention is focused on what the women's team are wearing. Out they come, in calico dresses and jackets, pink for one team and blue for the other. The game ebbs and flows like cricket matches do, but Barbara's team wins the day by 21 runs. Barbara is top score with 36, and the game ends in a celebratory finale. On the face of it, it's been a huge success. Well, it's, it seemed to be really, really well received. One thing that really appealed to me when I was recounting this was the amount of interest it garnered on a local level. The parade going to the game, you know, these women were celebrated. It was a big thing. It had a great write-up in the paper. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm and people came from all over. But that reaction is far from universal. Some newspapers, especially the publications in Melbourne, The Herald and Punch, and even a nearby local publication, sneer at the whole idea. And that's going to be a pretty common view for a long while yet. The newspapers are important to this story because they're a good barometer of community views about women and about sport. In the early days, a lot of the coverage by women playing cricket is written by men, who are for the most part patronising, smug or dismissive. That too will change when a few women become sports journalists and start to treat women's cricket like any other game. But not yet. Not in 1874. After the Bendigo game, the Ray family is singled out for particular scorn from the papers. If there had been social media in 1874, we'd call it a pylon. Back then, the effect was the same, especially when John Ray is alerted to what's being said. Someone actually um, delivered them a copy of the paper where there were all of these nasty things that were said about the women in it and he just went off, really. (laughs) I could just imagine the scene. He reads it, he sees it and goes, I'm not standing for this, you know, and he just jumped in boots and all and defended the women. He just went to town and just said this is not appropriate and he, he really gave them an earful about, you know, their views as not being appropriate. That's putting it mildly. Sir, someone has taken the liberty of thrusting a disgusting publication on my wife and daughter called the Maryborough and Denoli Advertiser with an article on the ladies' cricket match specially marked. When I require the services of a degraded and contemptible scoundrel to show my family the evil effects of experiential personal acquaintance with notorious courtesans, I will know where to apply. But meantime, they are under my care and are accustomed to associate with those whose principles are altogether beyond the reach and conception of a vulgar and scurrilous newsmonger. They went in even harder. So the fight became not only with the women, but it became with him as well. And it was attacking his integrity as the schoolmaster and, again, his integrity about allowing his women to actually behave like this. So they were hitting him with a double whammy. First off, they hit the women for being able to do this and then they hit him for having an opinion on it and for allowing them to be able to do this. It's shocking in its way, but the Rays are made of stern stuff. Barbara Ray isn't put off. She organises a second match at the Easter Fair the following year. It doesn't go as well. Even the local paper that had been so supportive a year earlier 
notes that the ladies of Bendigo had dared public opinion this time around. I can't imagine what it would have been like for them to play knowing the reaction that they got after the first game because that was fairly intense. The attacks were nastier after the second match. There was the shade of the first match that came, but after the second it was like a real we don't want this to continue was the type of opposition that was presented. A lot more hostility. I think there was definitely a lot more hostility for the second run. All the fuss and feeling made it almost impossible to take the idea further. Matches with a Melbourne team and another in Geelong come to nout. I think everyone viewed it as an experiment that they hoped would go away. And when there was a second match, it was like, well, this could become a trend. So um, I think everything kicked up a year after that. Another match in regional Victoria is scheduled, but according to the local paper, it's allowed to lapse because it was feared it would take all mankind from their own sport. Sometimes, though, progress diminishes doubt and rancour. Time is often kinder to those who challenge convention and tradition. So it is that the Bendigo match that causes the Ray family so much public pain is actually the first recorded women's cricket match in Australia. All that debate has ensured the game is firmly placed on the public record. The Rays have started something. But perhaps more than that, Barbara Ray's efforts have captured something contemporary. Louise sees the bigger picture of that long ago game for modern women. The thing that really drew me to the story is that it, it really captures the struggle for a lot of us in actually following our passion and doing what we'd like to do as women. And I, I think that there are have been a lot of obstacles for a lot of us over the years in how we express ourselves. And even though there are great changes that are happening now and there's a lot of barriers that I feel are coming down, I think we've still got to do a lot of work on, even for ourselves, in accepting that it's it's okay to actually follow what, what we want to do. I think we've got all this history that's that's part of us as well as, as, as part of these stories that can put a bit of a barrier on people actually trying. From our vantage point almost 150 years later, there's a couple of things about the Bendigo game that keep recurring for women's cricket, especially in the early days. For a start, many of those early matches were for a charity and as a result, that meant they were only one-off games. No organised structures, no fixtures, just two teams coming together for a cause for one game. The other thing that's noteworthy is the role of fathers and brothers in particular, providing the kind of encouragement for their wives and daughters and sisters to take up the game. And there's probably no better example of that than the famous match in Sydney between the two teams, called the Sorocos and Fern Lees. Let's jump a dozen years ahead of our Bendigo game and head to Sydney to a venue we now know as the August Sydney Cricket Ground. It starts when a bloke called Fred Ironside, a local cricket entrepreneur, puts an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald asking for women cricketers to play in a charity match. Two months on, in an early autumn day in 1886, two teams take the field. There's a ring of familiarity in the batting order. Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. Where have I heard that name before? 
Well, it's a famous Australian cricket name. Ned Gregory played for his country in the first test against England in 1877, alongside his brother Dave, who just happened to be the captain. Ned had a son, Charles, and a son, Sid. They were pretty fair cricketers too. Sid played 58 tests for his country. Ned's also had some daughters, Nellie, Louisa, Alice and Gertrude. They could play a bit too. And it's probably worth mentioning that the Sydney ground is a bit like the Gregory girls' backyard. Old Ned's the curator. On match day, Nellie captains the Sirocco's. They wear cardinal and blue outfits, and her sister Lily Gregory, who leads the Fern Lees, wears black and gold. Of course, there's a band and trophies, some spectacularly good trophies, gold watches, diamond and pearl brooch. There's a good crowd. Newspapers reckon there's about a 1,000 or so people in the crowd, and they help raise £215 for charity. The Gregories dominate with bat and ball. Nellie takes 14 wickets across two innings, makes 82 runs for once out, and Lily takes six wickets in one innings. But the match is a tight draw. For all their success, though, the real star is a young woman no-one really knows much about, the Fernley's top scorer, Rosalie Dean, who hits 39. Rosalie turns out to be a pioneer in every sense of the word, A couple of years after this game, Rosalie turns out in another match and scores a century in each innings. No woman anywhere has done that. And you can scour the National Library's newspaper database called Trove and you'll barely find a mention of it. Some years after Rosalie's feat in 1897, it gets a mention in that famous almanac of cricket achievements, Wisdom. And with that Rather all too brief mention, Rosalie becomes the first woman into cricket's most famous little book. How did Rosalie do it? How did she score those 200s? Well, she explained it all to an interviewer many years later. It was all rather simple. Well, I couldn't really tell you. I always went in first and came out last. Rosalie Dean. A name we should know, but we don't. She was one of 11 kids. And you guessed it, she had a few brothers among that brood who happened to have a fondness for cricket too. Nowadays, Rosalie is largely forgotten. She shouldn't be. Not only was she probably, by all accounts, one of the earliest batters to sign up to the philosophy of sea ball, hit ball, she had a great turn of phrase especially when it came to explaining the difficulties she faced. Ah, you had to love the game very dearly to stick to it. Or because you were ostracised by society and hands were were lifted in horror when you walked onto the field showing an inch of stocking above the ankle. (laughs) Nowadays, the more inches you show, the more popular you are. I felt like a little mouse when I walked onto the field for my first game. I had the impression that, that everyone was looking at me. But once the game was on, all I thought about was the match. Let's shift states and head south to perhaps an unlikely place to discover the next pioneer in women's cricket. 
We go to Tasmania, south of Hobart, to an area known as Oyster Cove, and a young woman called Lily Pullet Harris. Oyster Cove's a small place, just in the part of Tasmania where the D'Entrecasto Channel separates the Tasmanian mainland from nearby Bruny Island. Just like Barbara Ray and Bendigo, Lily is the daughter of a teacher and he helps support her interest in cricket. We don't have too many pictures of Lily, but there's one image of her in the local museum. She's got a no-nonsense look about her. She's determined. She's got your measure. But who is she and why is she important to our story? Here's Jackie Triffitt, former Tasmanian cricketer and the author of On the Front Foot, The Rise of Tasmanian Women's Cricket. She was born in 1873 and she was a twin. Her twin sister was Louisa Violet and their father, Richard, had come to Hobart Town in 1857 and he took up the post as rector and headmaster at Hobart High School. Um, His first wife had died in England. He came to Tasmania with his six-year-old daughter and two-year-old son. He was also ordained a priest in England. So when he came to Tasmania about a year later, He married Elizabeth Millwood and then had a second family. Uh, So in that family um, was Via, who was one of the cricketers of the family. There was Nellie, May, and then the youngest was Lily and Violet. Richard was an educationalist. He had a strong influence on his family. He wanted his family to have a broad education, and this is also what he emphasised at Hobart High School as well, where students learnt music and literature and drawing and also the importance of sport. I think he probably thought that education should be accessible and equitable, even though they were living in a society that placed more importance on education for boys and girls. And he was very active in the community. And he was also trustee of the Southern Tasmanian Cricket Association, ended up being one of the founding members of the University of Tasmania as well. And not forgetting Lily's mother, her mother also did a lot of work in the local community. And she was described as very being very resilient and compassionate and gave a lot of support to Richard so that he could continue the activities that he actually did. So I think particularly her dad was a a driving force for Lily to take up any opportunities and create opportunities as well. There's no doubt there's something remarkable about Lily. She's only 12 when she saves her mum from being badly burnt in a bushfire. Her mum's clothes caught fire, but Lily quick as quick wraps her wet bathing outfit around her mother's burning dress and saves her from serious injury. And Lily wasn't one for accepting the status quo. She sat for what was called the Newcastle Scholarship, which was an examination that was only open to boys in Tasmania. She did it just to test herself. She came second. I reckon for her it was taking up a challenge to actually see if it could be done. She was an intelligent, bright woman who saw opportunities and also was very much connected to her community. Like when she died, there were lots of comments about just how compassionate she was and how she she really worked hard for her community and contributed. And I just think that she thought here was an opportunity for women my age to participate in a sport that only their brothers or their fathers, you know, were able to play. No surprise then that Lily's also highly organised and a natural leader. In 1894, she captains the Oyster Cove Cricket Club and organises three matches against a women's team from the north of Bruny Island. These days, the best way to get from Oyster Cove to Bruny Island is to catch a car ferry. 
takes about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the conditions, to get you across the channel. You don't have to wait long for that ferry. There's one about every half an hour. But, you know, back in Lily's day, the only way to get to a cricket match from Oyster Cove to North Bruny was to get a boat. So Lily organises a private yacht to get a team there. We're in 1894 now. The Bendigo game was 20 years ago. And the newspaper brouhaha that followed that game is nowhere to be seen in Hobart. Each of the three games between Lily's Club and North Bruny get the same column of coverage men receive. And at the end of the series, the Hobart Mercury publishes all the stats on the games, the averages, the wickets, the catches, the whole thing. Lily tops the lot. It's right there in the paper. These matches mark an important next step in women's cricket, as Jackie points out. For me, it had all the hallmarks of organised competitive cricket, which I think was actually different to what had been happening previously uh, interstate, even though games of cricket were being played by women earlier. For example, the the, the game at um, Sandhurst and then, of course, the famous Fernleys and Sirocco's match. I think the difference was that these matches were there for charity and fundraising, whereas I think when Lily and her teams decided to play, I think they had the idea that they wanted to continue playing. They actually wanted to establish a competition with the intention of organising cricket on a continuing basis. And I think they seem to get more traction in, in setting up a roster competitive type of cricket. It's why Lily's so important to the bigger picture of Australian women's cricket. I think she can very much lay claim to being a, the founder of organised women's cricket in Tasmania. I think firstly because she and her teams did have the intention of organising cricket on a continuing basis. But as a captain of the cricket club, um, she would have also needed to be instrumental in getting her team ready and being able to organise the competition and the roster And again, they played a series of matches. Um, It was obviously well recorded in having averages. And the other thing that happened at the end of that season was that the Cricket League actually increased to include two other teams, um, Hobart-based teams, Atalanta and Heather. Those four teams then continued to play from December 1894 to around about April 1895. So to me, I think she was inspirational, but I think she also sowed the seeds for what I consider to be the start of organised women's cricket in Australia. Now, there's certainly matches being played among schoolgirls in Hobart a couple of years before this competition. But nothing's as organised as Lily's efforts. She's a one-off. But sadly, her story ends too soon. She dies from TB only a month short of turning 24, and what we might have known about her and become the basis of a greater celebration of her contribution is destroyed in a family house fire. What remains is a strong legacy and the wheels she set in motion, which continued to turn, and we'll see how that turned out in a minute. Back in Melbourne in 1895, another young woman is making different kinds of waves. Let's meet Millie Finkelstein, who is neither the offspring of an educator nor a woman exposed to cricket by her brothers. She's a writer and a resident of Melbourne's Fitzroy, 
an inner-city suburb that has fallen on hard times. Millie's first novel is called The Newest Woman, with the subtitle The Destined Monarch of the World. The book is set in Melbourne, in the future, in 1950, and Millie creates a futuristic society in which women take on male roles. The book's published by a weekly newspaper called The Melbourne Sportsman, and early on in the book, Millie promises readers they'll get a strong vein of sport and sensationalism. Sure enough, there's mention of the Melbourne Cup. There are women called lady jockeyesses, lady bookmakers and lady gamblers. But not this time are there any lady cricketers. Millie has a talent for promotion and she also sees the benefit of a women's cricket match being played for charity. She's very happy to enlist the newspapers in helping her. Remember how the Herald reacted to the Sandhurst game in 1874? Well, a lot's changed in 20 years, when Millie writes to the Herald. It seems that the Melbourne afternoon paper has become a little more relaxed about the idea of women's cricket. Sir, as a regular reader for years of the Herald, will you allow me a few words with reference to suggestions by your correspondent of a ladies' cricket match on behalf of the charities? As Honourable Secretary of the Approaching Jewish Bazaar, I two weeks ago wrote not only to one, but to several committees of our leading cricket grounds for permission to use their grounds with the view of having matches in aid of the movement in question. I'm not ambitious to take any credit not belonging to me and would like to mention that the idea was given me by Mr Pat Finn, who not only suggested the matches but also asked me, if possible, to further enhance affairs by making it a reform costume match. By doing it in this way, there would be no very great extra expense for no coat or vest would be necessary. Indeed, the player would only require a pair of... (laughs) Now, sir, fair play is bonny play, and I feel confident that your lady correspondents will not forestall me in the charitable objects I have in view, and if they will send me in their names at once, the ladies' cricket match will soon be a stern reality. Australian ladies, misses though they may be, are known all the world over as good catchers, And I do hope, Mr Herald, as I am, to use a cricketing phrase, first in the field, they will not upset my arrangement. In conclusion, I would suggest that the total receipts be divided into three parts. One, to be handed to the Herald to be distributed at the discretion of the editor. The second part, to be retained by myself for the Jewish Bazaar Fund. And the third, to be handed over to Mr P Finn on behalf of the grief-stricken widow of the late Harry Allnutt whose cause the first-named gentleman has so tenderly espoused. So confident am I of the success of the idea that after playing one match, we could meet and beat the English eleven if Mr Stoddart would only allow the Australian eleven to bat, bowl and field for us. I am, etc. Millie Finkelstein, Montefiore, Hanover Street, Fitzroy. P.S. Of course, I would like the ladies to settle among themselves as to costumes. Millie's shrewd. She's reading the public mood. There's a buzz around the country after a thrilling Ashes cricket series in 1894-95 that was delicately poised to all until England won the final test. Interest in cricket's rarely been higher. Surely a cricketing contest between two women's teams will find a large audience. Millie herself turns performer to celebrate the Ashes series with a quaint piece of poetry written by her partner, writer, actor and impresario, Pat Finn, which she delivers for a rowdy crowd in Carlton. 
Cricket, a word that fires each heart and thrills each manly frame. Cricket, tis of ourselves apart the King Australian game. To merry England, well we know, Australia's chosen men went, and the brave old British lion was bearded in his den. And trumpet-tongued the news went forth, all saw what we could do. And east and west and south and north all cheered the kangaroo. Perhaps it's no wonder that when Millie's match is held at the East Melbourne ground in March 1895, that the two teams are called Australia and England. And perhaps, just perhaps, it's the first time that two women's teams take the field under such titles, even if it's tongue-in-cheek. And it's quite an event, featuring, as Millie promised, some big cricket names, some even appearing as England. Past have been practicing assiduously at the manly game of cricket, no one but themselves knew where, were wise in keeping the locality dark, everyone being anxious to see them, and had perforce to wait until Wednesday afternoon. The attendance on the East Melbourne cricket ground was large, and the greatest interest was shown in the event. Many thought the cricket field was not in woman's sphere, but the majority believed in it as a means to health, just as tennis is. A man on the trombone burst into a serenade which did not meet with the appreciation the sad man desired. Nobody wishing to be a party to anything that savoured of ridicule of the efforts of the fat exponent of the national pastime. The elevens had to submit to the attentions of the photographer just as the teams in the late international match had to. They styled themselves Australia and England and the list of names in the English eleven included those of many past and present Australian eleven players. Miss May MacDonald, sister of Percy of that ilk, a man who has done much good for cricket in the colonies, captained the English, and Miss Annie Trott, sister of the famous South and East Melbourne players, led the other eleven. Both sides were very tastefully attired in the orthodox flannel, though not of the rational style of architecture. The ladies wore short skirts and loose blouses and gem hats, one side with red ties and the other with blue. The crowds turn out, but some of the newspapers don't think much of it at all. All a little underwhelming, it seems, especially if you've feasted so richly on the excitement of the ashes. And that appears to be it for Millie Finkelstein and cricket, but her contribution is notable. She's a forward thinker, and she's showing that interest in women's cricket is broadening, and she has that entrepreneurial flair. No bad thing. So here we are. On the cusp of a new century, we've seen women play cricket across the colonies, sometimes for charities, sometimes in organised competition. It looks like the game is about to take off, and then nothing happens. After these breakthrough moments in interest, in individual performance, and in organising the game, the momentum stops. Women's cricket enters a strange moribund period where nothing much is going on. Sure, there are small pockets of interest, but it takes about a decade for the game to recover its energy. Now, for some innovations, this kind of hiatus would spell the end. But what we see here, after 1895, is actually the first piece in the puzzle that is Australian women's cricket. A puzzle that looked at across the years reveals a strange pattern of success followed by years of silence. The course of women's cricket in England is a little different, but its hiatus in its early years predates our own. There's evidence of women playing cricket there in 1745, 
two teams of maids, all dressed in white, according to the papers, but these were very localised matches and usually one-off games. There was no sense of organised cricket there until later in the 1800s, as the recognised expert on the English women's game, Raph Nicholson, explains it. I think it meant that it was easier when um, the Victorians kind of came along in the 19th century with their ideas about womanhood and ideas that women should be in the home and that um, cricket and sport wasn't particularly suitable for women. It made it easier for them to kind of stamp down on it um, because it was very much um, these one-off affairs. Um, Whereas if there'd been a kind of central organisation advocating for it, then perhaps that would have been harder to do. Um, But as it was, um, as the, the kind of 19th century dawns, um, women's cricket tends to, <laughs> tended to not endure very successfully. Um, so there aren't records of any teams kind of surviving from that early, late 18th century period, um, right through until um, if, when it picks up again in the, in the later 19th century. It sort of all goes quiet for a while. Back in Australia around the same time, ideas about women playing sport were changing, but changing slowly. Doctors and schoolmistresses observe that excessive devotion to athletics and gymnastics tends to produce what may perhaps be called the neuter type of girl. Her figure, instead of developing to full feminine grace, remains childish, or at most tends to resemble that of a half-grown lad. She's flat-chested, with a badly developed bust, her hips are narrow, and in too many instances there is a corresponding failure in function. When these girls marry, they're too often failed to become mothers, or they are less well-fitted for the duties of maternity than are their more feminine sisters. Part of that transformation was bound up in medical opinion, which had once held that physical activity was detrimental to women. By the 1880s and 1890s, there was a shift more towards encouraging women because of the health benefits of undertaking activity. Sport, including swimming, Uh, for recreation, not competition, you understand, was considered a winner for women. And you could separate men and women with that sport, so that was a bonus. Tennis also became more popular for women, and there was a national golf championship for women in 1894. Yet views about women's physical suitability for sport persisted. Listen to this from The Age in Melbourne, under the byline Viola. The athletic woman is as different to the domestic woman as the stockbroker is different to the jockey. The domestic woman may play an occasional game of golf, and the jockey may deal now and then with stocks and shares. Fundamentally, however, the difference remains. And why it should be totally disregarded in one sex and emphasised in the other is something the average mortal is at a loss to determine. No one who has seen a pretty, plump girl develop into an anxious-eyed, leather-skinned woman through too violent exercise of any sort is likely to maintain that athletics for women are an unmixed blessing. They are fatally easy to overdo, especially the ones in which emulation is a feature. Cycling gave hundreds of women a weather-beaten appearance, but it rarely stamped them with the do-or-die expression which characterises your really ardent golf player or tennis champion. The really successful sportswoman is only in very exceptional cases an ideal type of woman. But this at least may be said in her favour. She is far more interesting, healthier and more human than the woman who ignores exercise altogether. Fortunately for the world at large, 
an average woman takes up her position at neither extreme. She either enjoys exercise or she takes it from a sense of duty. Part of this gender distinction was caught up in the debate about what women should wear while they played sport. Clothing, of course, whatever sport, was still long skirts at the time, and that too would become an ongoing issue for women and cricket. Here is the English writer Mrs Merle Norman sharing her views with an Australian audience in 1896 about actually what was appropriate. Woman, possessing an unnatural figure, is found yearning towards the athletic pursuits which man, with a natural figure, has always enjoyed. Almost all women have slightly deformed ribs. We needn't argue about it. We can dip into a fourth standard domestic economy book instead and consult one of those bitterly truthful diagrams. She has. Smart gowns would not look well on her if she hadn't. Her legs, too, are unaccustomed to free and independent movement, and her feet are, for the most part, not what they should be. She regards all these little irregularities as beauties, and she demands at all times to be beautiful, in her own interpretation of the term. Woman when assuming her rightful place in what was once strangely called man's province of exercise and sport, should wear the clothes best adapted to a human being's comfort and safety while pursuing that exercise or sport. In 1901, Australia is federated and a few of the tectonic plates of social change are starting to shift and they start to have a consequence. A year after Federation, Australian women get the vote. One of the proponents of that change, Victorian woman Vida Goldstein, becomes inaugural president of an organisation called the Victorian Ladies Cricket Association. Please note, they're ladies. The word women won't appear for some years yet. It's some association. There's 21 teams and there's a very strong competition. Vida presents awards and pennants at the end of the season. Vita's involvement's important. She is what we might now call a change agent. In the words of historian Claire Wright, Vita becomes a national symbol of the new dawn for women's potential and capacities. It says something for women's cricket that Vita hitches her cause to this budding organisation. And reflecting that thirst for competition, the Victorian women turn to the only other state with a similarly organised structure, Tasmania, for what becomes the first interstate women's match in Australia. It's entirely appropriate to see the hand of Lily Pullet Harris behind the strength of the Tasmanian game, evolving from the structure she'd established in southern Tasmania and set in train its growth in other parts of the state. The first game between Victoria and Tasmania is at Victoria Park in Collingwood. There'd been an intercolonial game between Victoria and New South Wales in 1891, but this interstate contest breaks new ground, even if it doesn't end well for Tasmania, as Jackie Trifford explains. They lost by quite a lot. The biggest difference was the Tasmanians bowled underarm and the Victorians bowled, again, either roundarm or overarm, and they were quite fast. So that was difficult, both batting and bowling. And then what they did was that they played a number of other district cricket teams as well on their tour, which was just under two weeks. 
I think it would have probably been quite an enlightening thing for them to do to play cricket at that level because the cricketers who were playing for Victoria were pretty good. The first match, that drew over 1,500 spectators and it got so much coverage. So it got coverage from the Age, Punch, the Argus. The photographers were there all the time. They were very interested in the Tasmanian team that had come over to play and there was a lot of interest that was happening for those games and a good mix of male and female spectators as well. Um, But it was interesting in the reporting because a lot of interest was taken in what the women were actually wearing. Um, And, of course, they were wearing the full skirts, Mm. the blouses and the straw hats, which which created a bit of a problem when the wind came up as they tried to field the ball. The match does, however, have a rather grand flavour. I'll read you a little excerpt. This is what the Tasmanian team was dressed in. Oxford blue skirts, rather too long for comfort, cream blouses, white straw hats with blue ribbon, blue belts, white cricketing shoes, blue necktie, the ends held by a safety pin, and many of them wore strings of pearls, silver and gold badges chain bags and generally a miniature portrait hung around the neck by way of a a mascot. For your lady cricketer is quite as superstitious as men players. The Victorian 11 were also blue skirted but had on white jerseys instead of blouses. Some wore caps, blue caps and others ungainly straw hats. And the Tasmanians were always complimented on the way they carried themselves and the way they, they dressed. The Victorians were criticised for wearing knitted sweaters and they said that the walk and the carriage of the visitors were a distinct improvement on that of the Melbourne girls who were inclined to walk with too much swing. And it catches the eye of one reporter who can see perhaps a potential in the match that others might have missed. Atticus writes lightly in the leader, I suppose... The visit of a Tasmanian team of sweet girl cricketers is something like a proof that the girl cricketer has come to stay. It was only the other year that the softer sex took seriously to the game and already we're having interstate contests. Presumably the international struggles will begin shortly and doubtless most of us will live to see an Australian eleven composed of lady players sail away to assert Australian supremacy on English fields. It may be reserved for an 11 of girls to bring those ashes back to the Commonwealth. There was a return match in 1907, but the Victorians remained ascendant in that one too. This interstate contest is evidence that women's cricket is developing. There are more clubs, more organised competition, and as a result, the standard is starting to improve. The adoption of round-arm bowling is a vital part of the game. And remember, it was Englishwoman Christina Wills who actually pioneered round-arm bowling back in the early 1800s. Charity matches are slowly giving way to organised competitions. There's one other element that's becoming increasingly common. The emergence of middle-class women, such as Vita Goldstein, who take on a prominent role within the game as administrators and as organisers. And it goes on being a feature of the women's game. And they help position women's cricket to take the next step. And that's when the game really gathers momentum. Next time on The Maiden Summer, we'll find out just who will put women's cricket on the road to their first international matches against the old enemy in the aftermath of the most bitter cricket contest in history. One of the sides, for sure, And they decided, well, I'd be better than nothing, so they gave me a game. 
and it turned out all right. So I got seven for two. <laughs> this podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Louise Zeta-Sampson, Jackie Triffitt and Raphael Nicholson. For details on their books and other credits, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au. Special thanks to the voices of Sue Westwood, Hazel Pygram, Jane Longhurst and Chris Plummer.